us today for Geezers of Gear, episode 43. Today's podcast is brought to you by Elation Professional. Elation's Razor 760 is the next generation LED wash, beam, and effect light ideal for any size stage. Featured on this year's Super Bowl halftime show and currently out on tour with Rob Thomas. Not only is the Razor bright with pixel control of seven 60-watt RGBW LEDs, it also houses a super-wide 5 to 77-degree zoom and continuous 360-degree pan and tilt. Its feature set is capped off by Elation's innovative SparkLED technology. 2-watt white LEDs placed inside the lenses to create a unique sparkle effect, giving designers a fresh and innovative way to create interest and depth on stage. See the Razor 760 and all Elation products at elationlighting.com. Prior to taking you to the podcast, I would like to apologize in advance. We did suffer some audio issues today. And I do apologize. Thank you. Hi, Henry. Episode 43. Here we are. Here we are. Surviving the storm, or having survived the storm anyway, right? Yeah. Yeah, we should call this episode uh, Dorian, I guess, or something. Um, I saw a cop a couple days ago. A cop rescued a pit bull from a woman who couldn't take care of it. I don't remember where it happened. Might have been in the Bahamas, but... um, so he rescued the dog and she didn't want it anymore. It was a puppy. And, uh, so he kept it and called it Dory. Oh, what a nice story. So speaking, speaking of this hurricane, you know, I'm sure that most people listening to this podcast, if you're listening to it the week of September 1st or whatever this week is, uh, 2019 you have probably seen on the news somewhere that uh this hurricane dorian hit pretty hard in the bahamas and oddly enough i actually took a look this morning at our listeners in the bahamas and we have lots of them so i was kind of surprised to see and of course that number escapes me now because i can't pull up the map on my computer but um as I recall, we had a uh, hundred ish listeners wow. total from the Bahamas, which, you know, to me, like, I mean, we have customers and stuff in the Bahamas that we've done business with over the years, quite a few of them. And um, certainly we wish them all the best. And anyone who, you know, hears this that is in the Bahamas, which I doubt would be anyone at this point, nobody's sitting listening to our podcast uh, today after having been beaten to death by this thing yeah but um you know we wish everybody the best over there i hope that uh they can successfully rebuild you know living here in south florida for 30 years 29 years i have certainly partaken in the beautiful islands to our east and um been there many many times by boat by plane stayed in hotels stayed in uh stayed on boats and um, even in the Abacos, which really, really got hammered. I was in the Abacos for, for about a week at one point, staying on a friend's big, big, big boat. And um, just a beautiful place. So very sad. And Henry, I know that you've probably uh, looked up some ways that we can help. Yeah, And absolutely. some of the best ways. I know people have asked me even, just because I live in South Florida. But uh, what are some of those things that <clears throat> people can be doing? 
So, uh, you know, so a couple of things, right? Just, you know, for all the listeners that are out there, don't forget that, you know, for us Americans, we vacation a lot over there. And, you know, anybody that's seen that, there are poor people over there, um, you know, that are kind of barely holding it together. Obviously, the Abacos is a near total loss event. Um, and, you know, Grand Bahama, right? So 13,500 homes flattened. Uh, so insane. It is wild. Yeah, so, I, I was reading someone posted on Facebook this morning. Oh, I think it was Creech, uh, Stephen Anderson, who, you know, spends a lot of time in the Bahamas through his diving and photography um, passion. And so he's got loads of friends in the Bahamas. And he posted this morning that uh, I don't remember what island it was in particular. I could have it wasn't Grand Bahama, I don't think. But anyways, it was totally uninhibitable there was no houses that survived zero and you know that's the level of devastation over there absolutely so um you know for the listeners here you can go to bahamas.com that's gonna lead you straight basically that's their uh, bahamas tourist page but it's gonna lead you straight into hurricane relief um there's the bahamas red cross and while i've never really been an advocate of red cross because they're uh Expenses are so high, right? But uh, these guys, they, they bailed out Puerto Rico during the Irma storm pretty well. Um, Red Cross has infrastructure, things like that, to get the most basic of, you know, water purification and radio communications up and everything else. So they'll be on the ground today. So uh, Red Cross is a way of going. And then also the, uh, the diocese of uh, the Catholic Church Diocese of Nassau, Bahamas. You can look that up online. They already have a donate page up also. Uh, Catholic Charities, uh, one of the biggest, you know, feed the the hungry organizations out there. So there's, you know, several different options of which to go. I've already received, believe it or not, a scam email this morning of all things. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <clears throat> Sadly, you know, these are the times. I'm glad you're bringing up good, legitimate concerns because these are the times when the worst of bottom feeders come out and try and take advantage of, you know, situations like this where people are in a giving mood and they want to take a piece of that for, you know, their own greed and stuff. It's got nothing to do with saving or helping people in the Bahamas, but with, uh, with stealing money. So pathetic. It was was really odd because it obviously came from Nigeria because, you know, deposit money in this Bahamas bank account today and get four and a half million dollars back, you know, and I guess, you know, in their own stupidity in a way (laughs) that they would even have the nerve to do that. I guess having seen the news, it's kind of, it's pathetic. I got to tell you. Well, zero class, right? I'm telling you. So, uh, interesting takeaway from last week's podcast with Eric Stewart. Um, you know, his biggest security threat, right? Pedophilia. That almost put me on the floor on the, uh, yeah. When, when he's discussing that, you know, I'm thinking, you know, light like you and I are thinking, you know, disasters and stampede and, and all that other stuff. And well, terrorism. Up, yeah. yeah. Right. And he pops up with pedophilia. You know, it's yeah. just, I didn't even a, know that existed. I mean, all of the obvious concerns and threats that were out there and we asked him his top five. And honestly, I think three of those top five, I really hadn't even thought that much about, you know, lightning was one of his uh, yeah. main concerns. And I didn't know that that was such a concern for event organizers or uh, for security guys such as himself or safety safety folks. But yeah, really super interesting podcast. Got lots and lots of comments back from people, um, both on Facebook and just 
people emailing and calling and stuff. So um, <clears throat> enjoyed it. It was certainly outside of our, our core of gear. And um, but I guess people thought that was OK. So I never got anyone reach out to me anyways, who was offended by the fact yeah. that we didn't talk about gear on that podcast. So that's good. That's kind of so. cool. So following up on the heels of that, uh, just kind of got kind of going through some of the concert news this morning, uh, the hardly strictly bluegrass music festival. And again, for the first time, it's kind of funny. We talked about security last week and there's an article about security. So that's a free event in San Francisco, Golden Gate Park. You have a bunch of uh, big headliners there, but it used to just be an open crowd event. People would come and pitch their blankets down. There was no gates. There was no anything. And this year uh, they're doing security searches and everything else. Right. So, you know, clear backpacks and, you know, you can bring a lawn chair, uh, but, you know, no big spreads, no coolers, no things like that. So that I guess they may have had some security issues in the past because all of a sudden this went from just a big hippie love fest to something that's a little bit more organized for gates, you know, stuff like that. So uh, no people getting in early. Uh, to pitch, uh, I guess, their tents and stuff like that at these festivals. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, I think it's become... probably impossible to have a free festival like that anymore because of the costs of liability insurance and the costs of all the different things that we have to pay for because people are generally going to cause problems and do yeah. stupid things, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, so it's that was, unfortunate. That was kind of interesting. Then, you know, going on the... Uh, not well promoted uh, music festivals and concerts and things. The Las Vegas Metarama Gaming and Music Festival. It's probably just doomed just by the name, the length of the name itself. Uh, they, yeah, <laughs> they called Both it. Both names were equally bad, by the way. So. Exactly. So yeah. apparently, this is a a gaming and music festival at the same time. I guess a lot of people that that do game listen to EDM, even though you know I'd be listening to Slayer, but. Um, yeah. <laughs> so um no it's just kind of interesting and they they had there was a competing rap festival in town they had incredibly low ticket sales and i guess it had to be incredibly unbelievably low ticket sales because they just basically said yeah we're calling this thing off and run, refunding people's money Ouch. so um so i guess that they they looked at the the till there and they went oh there's about you know 24 dollars and 99 cents in this so we better call it off yeah. And it's going to hurt us less to refund because, you know, what Eric was saying last week is, you know, there's a bunch of advanced ticket sales. They've already spent the money. Right. And then they feel forced to put the concert on. Well, this yeah, they is go forward with a half a show. Correct. And uh, yeah. So and I no guess... security and no safety and yeah. yeah, no concern for anything other than trying to recapture their money. So, yeah. So for the promoters of this event, you know, I guess they they knew when to say when, which yeah. is kind of cool they didn't scam a bunch of people it's not a security thing and there's you know not a lot of uh, bad press that went with this well it just i don't know we, we haven't heard from the production companies whose whose deposits <laughs> bounced or the bands who were promised money and That's didn't true. get it or you know i'm sure there's a backstory on it but hopefully yeah hopefully they're just nice guys and did the right thing and saw hey this is a loser let's you know drag it out back by the shed and put a bullet in it before it's too late True. So, so maybe that happened. Hey, I actually have a gear piece uh, that I'd like sure. to mention for once because you're always yeah. the gear guy. I, um, I've always, I think I've mentioned it on the podcast a lot of times, but I've always been a fan of Ayrton's videos and 
their live demonstrations as well. I, I'm a sucker for a good light show at a at a trade show or whatever, you know, a demonstrational light show. And I've certainly been a party uh, to a, or a part of putting together a few of them myself, you know, from a standpoint of, of you know, especially when I was at Martin. And um, a party. Yeah, and a party oh. or two. Done a couple parties too. But um, but Ayrton has always just really kind of knocked it out of the park with their demo videos and their uh, trade show presentations. And anyways, I received, and I don't remember one of the trade publications sent it. I don't know if it was Live Design or Plaza or whoever it was, but somebody sent out an email a couple days ago with a, a new Ayrton fixture in it. And I watched the video, and once again, I mean, just a total blow-away video. Just, you know, super, super creative in how they show a fixture. And, um, you know, to me, they're just the best. I don't know who creates this stuff, but they're the best. And But anyways, behind that video was what I thought was a pretty cool fixture. And I do realize that Act Lighting are a sponsor, so this sounds like there's dollar signs all over it, but it really isn't. This is just me talking about a cool video that I just saw. Um, this fixture called a Huracan, which you know is, I guess, the Italian pronunciation for hurricane. And going with the flow, um, Ayrton you know, being named after Ayrton Senna and then a lot of their fixtures being named after Aston Martin cars and now they've moved on to Lamborghinis. So that is a Lamborghini model, the Huracan. And um, so you would think it's all just about horsepower and while it does have a thousand watt LED lamp in it, so it is bright, but to me it's all about finesse in that fixture. And I don't know if you saw the video, Henry. But just briefly. Awesome segments of it, yeah. The optical package in that thing, I mean, the just the visual stuff that it can do, mm -hmm. and I don't even know if that's a thing anymore for lighting designers because between the video and the beam effects, I think that kind of covers the majority of a show these days. And whereas back in our day, you and me, when we were selling moving lights, everybody was looking at the projection, the pattern that yeah. was coming out of the fixture and that was being so you know it was all about the clarity of the optics the even smooth field no hot spots and this fixture just ticks all those boxes it really is incredible from a from an optical standpoint from what i've seen in the video anyways yeah the scenic effects are pretty cool and i guess it, it is you know somewhat relevant um you know, when you have panels and stuff floating around a stage and then you want to roll images across that, things like that. It's an interesting visual. I, I don't think, you know, to a large extent, obviously video for the most part is aimed, right? So right. if you're trying to light independent set pieces per se, it's a little bit more challenging when you set it up night to night to night, you know. I, not to say that it's impossible because obviously it's done quite frequently, but this is a... Uh, this is also another way or an old way to get scenic effects done. So very, yeah, very it's, uh, again, right. I don't know. I I'm just out of the loop on selling light fixtures anymore, but I don't know if there is a big market for something that has such amazing projection capabilities and visual capabilities. And, you know, I will probably personally blow a call into the guys at act just to ask them those questions uh, for my own sake, not for the podcast or anything, but I guess we'll see how the market accepts it. Like, Certainly a theater 
um, for theatrical functions, it would probably have a lot of value because theater, theater they're still lighting sets with with light fixtures, mm-hmm. whether they're you know stationary source fours or whatever, or they're automated fixtures. But um, in the video, I do remember something where it said it's got like hyper huge, massive, super sized fans. So making it a very non-theater type of fixture, I guess. But we'll see. We'll talk yeah, to the guys and try and get some answers on that. Absolutely. Um, on product news also, um, ANC does a Versa portable LED display. Another boring title, but you know, more and more, and I'm starting to see this as I travel around and, and, and see rental companies, they're starting to purchase more and more kiosks for branding. So, you know, you're a small to medium-sized rental company. You don't have the stroke to go out and do 200 grand on a big LED display, but kiosks are, you know, quite profitable, easy type setup stuff. You know, typically videos are uploaded from an iPhone to get branding, you know, the left and right of the door, uh, informational kiosks outside this weatherized stuff. So I think this is something that it's kind of interesting that you see something like this come across PLSN uh, per se, but the digital signage is still in its infancy in the production, uh, you know, rental staging area. But I think this is going to be continue to be really kind of huge for us in terms of our, it will grow actually and become huge for us as part of, you know, any rental fleet. So it was kind of cool to see that, uh, you know, this, this cool little kiosk here, it's, um, it's a standard, you know, rectangular shape, but you can snap multiple modules together. It talks to itself and you can get 16 by nine displays, easy setup stuff. Chimpanzee can set it up. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And I know, again, this is an area that's going to expand, uh, quite a bit, right? It seems to be a busy part of the market. Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, lastly is the drone show. I guess um, it was kind of funny when you talk about these things, what pops up in your YouTube feed, right? But uh, that Southern China, uh, there was, what, a technology show in, in Southern China, and they did this massive drone show where the actual drones were pixels in uh, in flight. And they were able to do a bunch of really, really cool designs and shapes and everything else. And some else. very cheesy ones, too. You know, yeah, exactly. the Chinese characters and the dancing weird little thing. and But, yeah, I mean, obviously, incredibly cool technology. And they were doing it, what, every 20 minutes or something? That's right, yeah. And I remember reading, you sent me that video. It's, it's uh, yeah, it's certainly different and unique and another sort of element in a show or whatever. Yeah. Um, I we talked about that briefly last week with Eric and um, he said that he doesn't see it becoming sort of the norm. He sees it as like something that people will do one time or whatever, but that getting permits and just getting people to agree to allow you to fly a hundred drones or 500 drones. How many were in this thing? I forget. Oh, there were, there were a buttload. Yeah. <laughs> didn't count them, but there was quite a few. Well, you it, know? Said, it said the number. It was like 500 or 700 or something. Anyways, to fly that number of drones above people's heads, that's just not going to be something that I think you're going to want to do. Yep. So I don't know that it'll ever become like a staple in the shows that we're seeing. So, um, Today we have uh, a pretty interesting guy, Tony from uh, from well, formerly of TurboSound, one of the right. one of the founders of TurboSound, and then started, I think, in the is it two thousand or early two thousands, started a company called Function, Function One, One, 
which is yep. a very, very cool nightclub speaker stack manufacturer who has gone more mainstream looking at their website. I, um, I didn't really know that they were now into line array because I thought they were relatively anti line array in the beginning. So it's going to be here. It's going to be neat to, to hear him talk about whether that was just sort of succumbing to the market or whether they really did invent a better mousetrap, which would be my guess. And, um, but you know, super smart guy, very, very bright engineer, um, very into design, the fact that they do purple because they don't like black boxes, um, because black means darkness. And why would you, you know, promote darkness when you can promote light? And, you know, I love that kind of mentality. And obviously they're children of the sixties. And so that's where a lot of that comes from, I guess. But, you know, just really cool guys. Uh, they seem to have kind of created their own, you know, they, they kind of changed the market twice. You know, once with Turbo Sound, where they created big purpose-built boxes as opposed to like public address stacks. That's right. And um, and then again now with with Function One, where people were using the wrong boxes in nightclubs. And um, you know, I watched a couple videos on Tony talking about that, and just the fact that you know they're using paper cone mid-range drivers as opposed as opposed to horns, which most people are using today. Um, so, and I'm, I'm sure Henry, you're sitting there in total shock that I've actually picked up that much information on these guys. <laughs> well, we have Tony and John on today. Oh, and we do. We, oh, right. I, thought, so, I thought it was just Tony. Cause I, I watched both of them talk and you know, they're both really interesting. So that's super cool that we get to get them both. Yeah. I just, you know, on the pre-call last week, I, I had John on and I, Tony was out, uh, selling stuff. So it's, it's kind of a, I guess it's a back and forth with these guys for sure. But, uh, John really kind of, we did the whole geek out deep dive on, on box technology. I will, I don't want to ruin the, the podcast, but they will explain their new line array concept, which is technically not a line array, but, uh, yeah. you know, so I'll, I'll let them talk a little bit about that. I thought the concept was very, very cool. Um, yeah, we talked a lot guys. about talked a lot about presence of a sound system how you know basically to get timber and pitch and things like that out of a sound system so yeah. i guess we'll, we'll have these guys on in uh, in a minute or two here and we'll get rolling on this and awesome. have a, a geek fest all right well let's get her done okay we well here we okay. are so who do we have do we have tony indeed indeed so are tony we... is is john joining us today or no he is He's, okay uh, i'm here to, can you hear me okay I can hear you okay, too. Ah, there you are. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I know this one has been a long time in the making, right, since uh, the early part of the summer, and here we are in the fall, so uh, yes. at the start of the fall. True. Well, it, it has, yes, it, it does get busy when the sun comes out. <laughs> That's for sure, and it warms up, right? And it's not yeah. raining, so perfect, perfect. Well, so it was a pretty exciting uh call with john the other day tony i know you were out kind of running around but i've been anxiously waiting uh, for this podcast obviously you know we're, we're going to cover a little bit of the history of the uh you know of these of the founding of function one it was kind of interesting though you always learn something new when you talk to somebody for the first time i had no clue that you guys were the founders of turbo sound and um yes Wow. Yeah, that, that was is sort a, of that was sort of like the bonus deal for our podcast was that we got to get the founders of of TurboSound on as well. You know, we were just chasing the guys from Function One. Ah, well, yes, 
I, it's it'd still be turbo sound, but um, uh, let's say you don't know everything when you start out. <laughs> That's yeah. for sure. That's for sure. That so I don't know which one of you guys wants to go first, but uh, you know, I guess Tony, since uh, since we have you, how'd you get into the business? So going in the wayback machine, you know, Marcel always mentions, "Hey, I was in a band. I was, uh, you know, a DJ," and then of course people wind up kind of evolving into manufacturing or this end of the business. And then uh, we'll let John go after that also. But Tony, how did this all start for you? Um, I guess it. I guess it was music from a very early age. Well, I, I, I actually I can remember the moment, nine years old, um, uh, You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog came on the radio. Wow. And it was quite a good radio. I felt all this electricity going up the spine. And I thought, I don't know what this is, but I sure want more of it. Um, it's really, really good. Um, and I was, I was hooked on, um, you know, modern, well, pop music at the time. Um, used to listen a lot to Radio Caroline and Radio London. They were the pirate radio stations in the North Sea um, during, the, I guess, the mid-60s. And they play all kinds of music and, you know, just got really turned on to it. Began to realise that I wanted to hear it with, you know, more than just your standard speakers. Um, I think built myself a pair of Wharfdale Super 12 RS, I think, uh, had a parasitic cone in the middle, um, obviously time coherent, um, but yeah, so that was it. So made speakers, I think I was about 16 or 17, purely um, to save money. And, you know, I was reasonable at woodwork and goes from there really. Um, so so when you say you built your own Wharfdale boxes, obviously Wharfdale at the time was a finished product and you wound up, I guess, doing the components. No, no, they were, selling, they were definitely selling drivers that you could put in your own cabinets. Interesting. You could and buy that, plans, couldn't you? Yeah, well, yeah, you could get plans. Um, there was plenty of DIY going on then. But, it, it, you know, anytime we talk to sort of, you know, people who have been in the sound business for a long, long time, it seems like that's how it went back then was, you know, you didn't go buy a commercially available sound system like you do today. You built one. Yeah, I mean, huh. let's just say that, I mean, there were some certainly some good hi-fi speakers around um, what comes to mind, Tannoy's. They've always they've always been there. Um, Leak were very good. Hmm. That a sandwich construction cone, um, you know, for pistonic movement, etc. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know how I finished up on the Wharfdale Super Twelves, but I really did like them. And I think it was just a sealed enclosure because anything else was outside my frame of reference at that time. Um, started um, a course at. Chelsea College as part of London University to doing geology. Couldn't take the, uh, if you like, right, here's all the facts. You you consume them, and then in three months' time, we're going to expect you to remember everything and write it down. I'd, I'd had years of that. Couldn't bear it. We were in the late 60s, psychedelic explosion. I needed to get with the music. So I, I quit university. Um, 
father didn't speak to me for probably about 15 years as a result of that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, because we all, we've all heard it. Um, you should be getting a proper job. Yeah. Um, so started out uh, being drum roadie for Pi Blocto, which was a band from Pete Brown, um, who did, I did an album with Jack Bruce. Um, what was it? Uh, Songs for a Tailor, I think. Um, and he had his own band and, you know, did a few, few tours with them. So what year is this roughly? I reckon it's got to be 69. Yeah. About that. That's going way back. Certainly beyond, you know, when you mention artists like that, I guess those were uh, local artists that were pretty popular in the UK. Is that correct? Yeah. And I mean, Jack Bruce, obviously yeah. part of Chris, um, was a phenomenal bass player. So, um, well, I suppose I, I should maybe hand over to John. Yeah, I was uh, going to say, John, tell us tell us your life story up until uh, up until sixty nine. <laughs> well, we got to sixty nine. Well, I'm I'm I was born a couple of years later than Tony, so uh, three years later. So, uh, yeah, um, three years is a long time, isn't it? When you're that age. Right. I, uh, I think I, I, I started making stuff before I got into music. I was making radios and, and getting, um, you know, one of those soldering irons that you heat up on the gas. Well, you probably don't know, but you used to heat your soldering up on uh, iron up on the gas cooker, and bang nails into a piece of wood and string the components between them. So I was doing that when I was about ten or eleven, and making. Um, radios and listening to shortwave and stuff like that coming down an aerial hanging out my bedroom window so it was pretty geeky and um it was my sister that convinced me it was a good idea because she wasn't old enough to go down the road and buy our first beatles record which i did and uh and so my sister turned me on to the beatles and um and and i i i would say that's how um that's how music did its magic for me. And, um, yeah, I kind of, I missed Presley. Presley was just that little bit earlier. Um, so yeah, I ended up listening to, um, I was in bands, uh, uh, as well later. And, um, and I ended up listening to my friends, uh, Hendrix, uh, Hendrix coming through my friend's hi-fi, you know, with the two speakers on the floor and my head in between, and uh that that blew me out of the water and um yeah i got i got hooked on the audio side as well as the music side so yeah i guess that's so as the both of you grew up i mean you know at some point you two met and um yeah I, that was that was in 1977 um in los angeles uh sunset the Sunset Marquee. Yeah, we were both staying, staying there. John was staying there because he was over with Steve Hillage, um, and Steve was doing sort of space funk with was it Dan Blocker and yeah, Joe Joe Blocker. Joe Blocker. Um, yeah, the Motivation Radio album. Yeah, yeah. And and I was at uh, Ricky Farr's place. Was that Vine Street? Uh, um, I went I went out a look. The building's still there. What used to be a parking lot's now 
something else altogether. There's a building there anyway. Um, and that was uh, my first taste of enchiladas, actually. <laughs> um, so, I mean, a lot of things that had happened between 69 and 77 um, had about three sound companies. Um, remember one of them, Cosmic Boxes. Um, Peace Sounds. Peace Sounds. Um, I mean, I was completely taken by the whole psychedelic thing. And... Uh, it got, it just got more and more interesting uh, with the audio involved. So, uh, so you were manufacturing boxes then, you know? Yes. Uh, uh, you know, so you transitioned obviously from hi-fi to PA, right? And uh, quite experimental stuff, right? With the horn loading of boxes, things like that. Is that when you started the whole horn loading thing? Yes. I mean, the the first thing we did. Uh, was to em emulate the um, the Wem column, which was four twelves with parasitic um, tweezer cones in the middle. Again, very time coherent. It was all working off the same voice coil. Um, we added some some horns to that uh, and took it out on tour with um, with the Pink Fairies, who were, if you like, at the hub of the London Underground, which was based all around Notting Hill Gate at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, then I began to ex yeah experiment with horn loading. Actually, this is this is this is a quite true story. There was um, I don't know if you remember Graham Bond, the Graham Bond organisation. Uh, Ginger Baker was the drummer. Um, he had a bass player called Pixie, and he wanted something a lot stronger. So. He came down to our place, which was just not much more than a double garage, um, and we'd we'd made a two by eighteen, which was quite you know a large speaker in those days, and um, we were what well what we finished up doing was making a folded horn, um, and all this stemmed from. Um, playing around with speakers uh, in the bedroom, if you like, and my brother pointing the speaker into the wall, uh, into a corner. And although obviously all the mid and top was wiped out, I noticed that the bass had got a lot louder. And so I thought, well, we should try and emulate this. Um, obviously the corner of the room wants to be reversed so that you've got a V pointing at the two boxes. Um, so made this kind of folding thing. I, I mean, you, you just use standard four foot eight, eight by four boards, put a lid on it. And we had tons of bass. The bass player came down, tried it out. Plaster fell out the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was wonderful. Um, but, but Tony, was this for a specific need or, or were you just noodling around trying to see what you could come up with? basically noodling around seeing what we could come up with yeah uh, but from that point onwards i was absolutely committed to horns i mean you know i mean they can give you um they did then and they do now they can give you up to 10 db more than a direct radiator so um that's not to be sneezed at, as it's 10 times louder um and there's more to it than just greater efficiency it's a more present immediate sound there, there, there's an attraction about it 
that you don't get with direct radiators. And we we picked up on that quite quickly. We both came to Horns um, you know, before we met. Um, there were two there were two bands uh, in the school at school where I was, and uh, the the other band, one of the guys, the guitarist in the other band, was into building stuff, and so was I. I was the guitarist in our band, and uh, he built some 15-inch um, horns based on uh, Voice of the Theatre stuff. The Altec A7? Yeah, yeah like the old Altec mm. ones with the big slots in the bottom. Yeah, yep. I remember and, that. Uh, and I built the, um, I think it was an RCA design that had a, a 12 inch and a port along the bottom. We had no tweeters. We could only just afford the 12 inch and the 15 inch drivers to put in them. But basically between us, we built a PA system. And we had, I think, one or two mono 30 watt wham amplifiers. And and uh, the thing was the horns, if you connected this these little amplifiers to a normal speaker, they didn't make any sound at all. But on the horn, you really got some efficiency and you got some sound out of it. And so, um, yeah, we were doing gigs with that. We, we actually supported some real bands occasionally. Um, that's, in, that's incredible when you really think about the, you know, the wattage the, that, that systems are consuming these days. A lot of people tend to forget that these systems, you know, and 30 watts per channel, you know, kind of predates me a little bit. But certainly I grew up in an era in the early 70s where, you know, 100, 150 watts, you were the king if you had 200 watts a channel. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. And it's interesting that um, as we got more amplifier power, so um, because horns are not that easy. um, People abandoned horns and uh, went. Particularly on the bass. Yeah, went for. To direct radiators because there was the amp power to push them but we never lost our love of horns and um you know i mean we do make some direct radiator products of course these days but um the real deal is the horn loaded stuff so uh, I mean, at, that, at that point i mean you know both of you are experimenting there is really no math behind the boxes in terms of time alignment standing waves any of that other stuff right i mean you're just sawing up four by eight sheets of plywood and are, are just having at it. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, you know, the trial and error approach. And uh, if you make the panels a bit movable, then then you can start trying out, I guess, flare rate, you know, and uh, things of that nature. So that's how we evolved ourselves. Tony really introduced me to that. I, I was the kind of guy that would... Uh, would try and find a set of plans to build something and 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 uh and you know use an uh, a design that was already there or do something very simple i mean i did string speakers together and just play and see what they sounded like but but so, you know, a lot of the, a lot- experimenter and i was kind of more or more the, the sound engineer you know the electronics and the and the mixing side of things so we sort of complemented each other so you know early early 70s sound when you kind of looked at that stuff obviously you had the jbl box designs i think which were the really uh, beyond the altec a7 the voice of the theater which is literally what you would put behind the screen in a theater right we got to remember that yeah you know uh, uh, obviously uh, i think elvis presley toured with a ton of 45 60 the jbl 45 60 boxes which was a horn loaded you know 15 
later to be used as mid-base, right? Um, yeah. 4550s, there was a bunch of stuff. Uh, so, you know, when, when you, so when was the first time you really applied the math to this? When you sat down, you went, oh, you know what? That last box that I just laid out 200 quid for just doesn't sound right. And you wind up tearing the box apart, um, trying to redesign it or completely scrapping it. At what point really did the both of you start applying a little bit more of the math to this in terms of, um, you know, the box designs. This had to be, what, early to mid-70s, right? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, um, how, I... How about never? <laughs> yeah, in a, in a, in a, in a nutshell. Um, to, this, to this day, we don't, um, we don't do any, uh, anything that's particularly standard. Um, the, I mean, you know, I'd I'd struggle with physics because not because I didn't like physics. I love physics, but it was all mathematics, and I did I definitely had problems with calculus, um, things of that nature. It just wasn't it wasn't my way, because for me, music is about feeling, and you you need to get the right feeling out of the speakers. The presentation is what it's all about for me. Right. Um, I fell in love with the soundstage, the stereo image, and probably during the 60s. Um, that was the, the thing for me. I mean, listening to Jimi Hendrix, Voodoo Child, um, and why aren't we doing that today, by the way? Um, it, that, that Hendrix album, it, all I can say is that was it for me. Um, the stereo pan in the dimension. And um, it's been the lifelong thing has been the the dimension is everything. We don't even want to know where the speakers are. We just want the sound image. We've, sort of a, we've actually interestingly got uh, Eddie Kramer coming on our podcast soon. So interesting guy for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, you know, they did magic things with stereo Amazing. Back, back then. Yeah. Um, and quadraphonic. <laughs> if you well, yes, that, there right? was. There was quadraphonic, wasn't there? Um, uh, some, I think, there were there were even um, tone arms with two styluses on. Um, for that, but there was uh, CBS had a system, Sansui had a system, um, and actually, the BBC. Um, had, I mean, Ambisonics goes back to this time, and uh, we were convinced about that back then. Um, but there was a way of encoding um, four-channel ambisonics um, into stereo called UHJ, and the BBC were doing broadcasts in it. I mean, it, it was becoming reasonably established. Um, as we know, all this faded out, and um, and well, I mean, to this to this day, the new the new buzzword is immersive sound of course um and well my comment would be it was immersive uh, back then right <laughs> uh yeah well my comment today is um please just 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 get stereo right because you haven't yet yeah. um and um, never never mind all the rest of it um so we I mean, we, we, we had experiences with the BBC, um, but we were, 
coming from a time where there were people around who wouldn't even that to use EQ was um, an absolute wrong thing. You <laughs> because you know you you're doing EQing by introducing out of phase or or in phase signal, and you're going to get um, you're going to get phase shift. And uh, there were people who felt and probably heard that that was not what you do. You you know, I mean, it's always been and still is that in audio, less is more. The, the fewer the stages, um, the pure it's going to be. So we had a we had a very purist background, I guess. Um, I mean, during the 70s, um, perfected the base loading technique. Well, got it to the point where it was, shall we say, really compact. And uh, I suppose in the in the late 70s, I got into driver manipulation, and uh, that's what we do instead of EQ because all our systems are out there uh, without onboard EQ. We may be the only company in the world who can who can say this. Um, what is and, that? What it, What is driver manipulation? Well, it's um, the, the strength and size of your magnetic field, i.e. voice coil size, top plate depth, um, you know, how, how much overhang you've got or not, um, the, the shape of the cone. I mean, when I first started getting into drivers, you could get, um, maybe eight or nine different kinds of pulp all, all with their, you know, particular characteristics. Uh, and they were all named after Greek letters of the alphabet. So, you know, you could get a thing to sound the way you wanted it to by adjusting the resonance the um the nature of the pulp in the weight yeah i mean how how big well how much mass you were you were you were throwing around you know you've got this fine balance um weights obviously the enemy of fast movement um so you weren't making your own drivers but you were you were manipulating other people's drivers yeah initially this would be in the late 70s um and i you know we'd um, myself i'd had a childhood practice with aero modeling you know cutting up bolster wood gluing it together so um cutting things up and um, gluing them together i mean the first 24 we made um john found a way to make a cone out of a flat sheet we developed that we we found big sheets of uh, the right paper. Um, made our own cones, yeah. Yeah, and made our own cones to. Wow. Think. So this is this is when TurboSound was initially established. Now I do want to get back to kind of how you two met and how TurboSound all came about before we. So there's there's quite an interesting little um, story about the meeting because just prior to the meeting in LA <clears throat> in '77. So Tony was out there building this uh, system for Ricky Farr for Electrosound. And um, they were about to go out and do some big, big tours with that. And I'd been working. Rod I finally, Stewart. It was Rod Stewart first, wasn't it? And yeah. then Alice Cooper, I think, later. And, wow. 
Oh, yeah, and Fee Waybill. Fee Waybill, yeah. Uh, yeah. White Punks on Dope. <laughs> Remember those guys? Yeah, of course. Yeah. The Tubes. There we go. Yeah. Tubes, yeah. Tubes. So, yeah, so that system was about to do all that. I'd I'd been in this band, and and uh, the guy in the other band I spoke about, um, they had a they had a manager, and this guy um, phoned me up one day, and he said um, he was at school with Richard Branson, and he said, "Oh, uh, I've just started this management company. Would you come and help us out with the band that we've got on the on the roster?" So I went over there, and um, basically within a within two weeks, I'd I'd um, walked out of my job at uh, the Polytechnic where I was a technician and I was on the road with a band and never went home. So, um, so we ended up having toured the, the States and worked on some systems with this band. We ended up back in the States in 77 recording an album and that's how Tony and I met. And I think Steve had met you before through uh, a festival in Windsor Great Park. That you that you'd been on may have done, yeah. Uh, one of those, um, one of those early. Well, it was a music festivals. It was a free festival, wasn't it? Yeah. Basically, basically, the people broke into Windsor Great Park because said, so, "Well, it's the Queen's property, therefore it's our property as well, and uh, we're going to have a festival on it." <laughs> so, needless to say, I got behind that idea and um, took my sound system down. It just doesn't um, work today as well as it used to, it does doesn't. it? No, it doesn't. <laughs> do it, today. it doesn't. I uh, mean, it was the police would look very confused in those days. Yeah. Not, not exactly. Yeah. Now yeah. they know who to arrest. Anyway, Tony said. So, so Steve said to me, "You've got to go and see Tony. Tony's got some great speakers. When we get back to the UK, you've got to go and see him, and then and maybe we'll take his sound system out on tour." So I went down to Tony's place and I walked in and he was in the workshop, in his workshop, um, setting up some equipment. And as the moment I walked in, he switched the sound on and I had the most strange experience. It was like, and it's what Tony was saying about the image of the sound. Although it was only a mono stack, I had this really strong image of the sound coming from the speaker. It didn't sound like a speaker. It sounded like the instruments playing from one speaker. And actually, that was a, an early turbo experiment. That was a turbo mid-range, you know, with the big face plug in the middle. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so basically, he had a 12-inch speaker and a tweeter and a double 18 bass bin stand, stood on end. And I just had the most amazing experience. And I said, I phoned Steve later that night and I said, I think we've got to do it. We've got to get, he's got enough speakers. We've got to take him on tour. I was really excited and Steve got really excited. And that's what we did. And that's what we did for the first few years, wasn't it? You would, mm. I, I'd take a system on tour and we, we would, we wouldn't speak to each other maybe for two or three weeks because you couldn't get a phone, you couldn't make phone calls very easily. Right. If you were in Europe, it would cost you a fortune to phone home, so and and you couldn't get to a phone. There might be a phone in a production office sometimes. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember one one phone call I had to make to Tony a bit later on in the early seventies. Uh, no, in the late seventies, when um, I had to phone him up and tell him that the power had gone bad in Italy and all the tweeters had gone in the system. That wasn't a very good one. No, no. I would imagine not for sure. So, yeah, at that, so, it, so at that point, are you guys formally turbo sound at this point? Is that 
Is well, that kind of- I think I think after the almost chance meeting, um, actually it was round the pool at the Sunset Marquee, um, we realised that we had a uh, a deep interest in audio and particularly speakers, um, and I, I was I was mixed up with. Uh, um, with Ricky Farr and it was the Andrew Warburg because they'd come in to bail out the Floyd Fun, and, yeah. or something, uh, yeah. not to bail them out. I don't know. There was some, I don't really know the background. I mean, I, I was it's an engineer. I took very little notice of business and, um, you know, there were actually things that you should pay attention to. But I mean, I was just all gung, gung ho for, envelope pushing if you like that was that was how i saw myself um and we we decided to form turbo sound to make make this thing because i'd also met a guy called tim isaac who um he would see the thing is the compression driver at that point would be running sometimes as low as 800 hertz Mm. Um, but certainly anything, um, below two kilohertz and it sounded like, um, Zoo. Arrivals, just <laughs> yeah. awful. Um, we really had to find something else. And, um, I was looking at Cohen mid range, but so was this chap called Tim Isaac, who was a, um, a very clever electronics guy. And, um, the story. The story of the turbo was that we we were using um, an eight inch from Electro Boys, um, was a really quite nice driver, in a horn. And Tim um, picked up a rolling pin and put it down the middle of the horn and got um, a load more coherency. Um, and I guess that was the start of turbo sound in a way, um, because we we realized something good was occurring here and we started to perfect the the shaping of of the actual turbo thing so uh, is that where the axe head came from is is that yeah. where that's the initial start of yeah. the traditional i guess function one axe head as you you call it now correct that shape or yeah that- because in the in the in the in the early days we were actually using um maybe five eighths wall thickness cardboard tubes because the the shape of the turbo was expanding you know it started out um probably at about two to one compression ratio maybe touch more at the back and then got narrow as it went to the front so the expansion all happened inwards and to some extent it made a i guess a plain wave which is why the um the, the range on it was just so phenomenal the thing is we 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 were only getting about five or ten degrees out of each one but that was fine because we just use a lot of them and um you know arc them so we were we were time aligning the tweeter boxes by putting them in the right place at the back of the scaffolding i mean by the late 70s we'd got that far with it um when uh, the the debacle that was the end of our time at um, Turbo Sound in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, 
you know, we thought we've got to get past this constraint and, um, you know, and try and get this thing to spread because it's, it's quite strange the way, um, particularly high frequencies will almost behave like a skin effect. Um, you know, like it does in wire, the high frequencies go, go down the outside of the wire. That's right. Um, and we just couldn't get the high frequencies to spread. Well, one of the things we did when we started at Function One, and it was John basically took one of the, um, what had become standard turbos at that point, and um, cut it down the middle and, you know, opened it up. Um, we'd been exposed to the stealth bomber through the, um, uh, yeah, the first Iraq war. Um, and for some reason they stopped on their way. Um, they should have gone all the way home, could have saved the world a lot of trouble. Um, anyway, I'd seen this and thought, right. So if this is to diff, shall we say diffract, um, radar waves, um, so that they don't come back, maybe we can use it in reverse. So that's why the, that's how the ax head became the ax head. And over, over the years, we've managed to get the thing to behave out to 90 now. Mm. Um, that's pretty fact, cool. what did you so, actually take from the stealth though? Like the, the shape or the material or what was it? It's the faceted look, you know, the way a diamond is cut with facets. Yeah. Well, the axe heads now, they've changed from the early ones were were the rounded bullet shapes that were split and opened out. So they look, actually, they probably looked more like a, an, the head of an axe. Whereas the, the later ones now, they're made out of facets. And these facets give you break points that somehow manage to make the, even the dispersion. So we get, we get much, much better much wider and more controlled horizontal dispersion around the front of the axe. It's so interesting that you would take speaker technology or sound technology from a stealth bomber, you know, but it's pretty weird, isn't it? You know, death from the air. Well, okay, let's, let's, let's use it for audio. Yeah. yeah but I, so I, I get great ideas for one thing based on looking at a completely different thing and even business ideas from a completely unrelated, very different type of business, there's always going to be some sort of, you know, commonality or something that, that, you know, sparks that idea or whatever. But, you know, I don't know that I've ever seen anything sort of as widely separated as a stealth bomber and a speaker, um, come together yep, like well, that, but that's interesting. Well, it's you know it the radar hits it and it goes anywhere but back to the source so it's invisible so i thought well if the sounds if we if we reverse the whole concept um and we have sound going across it the the break points that you get when you do things with in a faceted way um might disperse the stuff a bit better and and that did prove to be the case um so, so what you're talking about is the elimination of standing waves when you have multiple cabinets um uh, stacked up is that correct well so i mean uh, 
or we, getting with a point source system, getting the the slices of the cake to fit together better. Right. And the overlaps are minimized with, uh, yes. with the facets cut in the in the basically in the well, accent, right? The facets basically are used to tune the dispersion, and uh, and also to tune the frequency response too. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, and that really, I mean, the way we did that, and you know, the fact that it was flat and faceted meant we could use plywood and cut shapes and put them together and um you know we did an awful lot of that um uh, in the period between starting function one which was in pro uh, 92 um after after turbo sound got sold um I want to go back to that a little bit guys if we can because we kind of skipped over a big chunk of time uh you know my frame of reference from turbo sound was seeing actually what i thought was what i seem to remember in about 1983 was a horn loaded 15 inch box i saw it at the plaza show um and i, I was just blown away with the sound and i looked at it and there were competing boxes back then there was the electro voice eliminator i was manufacturing boxes at the same time a horn loaded box at the same time but i just want to go back a little bit on the evolution of the turbo system so obviously you had some interesting ways of introducing phase plugs things like that into the turbo sound systems and the company kind of took off and i know that you had some involvement with touring members of, of who were signed to the virgin records label and richard branson did he or did you ever get any angel investment from them or what was your involvement uh, no Virgin. The only involvement with Virgin was the fact that um, the Hillage band, Steve Hillage, was on Virgin management. And so that was my connection with the business, really. Okay. And you had also done some, you know, early Pink Floyd shows. Um, yeah. Is that? Well, uh, were they, I mean, early would be, well, uh, late 60s. We weren't involved with them at that point. Um there was there was an involvement because uh, initially TurboSound was a a rental company, and you know we I mean we were doing good acts. We were doing Santana, um, Jackson Brown, all kinds of people. Status quo. And actually, um, Mike Lowe was running the rental company, and uh, he did that for about four or five years, and we. And I mean, I didn't have a good relationship with Alan Wick, but he did say one smart thing. And he said, look, Claire have put everything in one box. You know, I liked things to be in separate boxes so you could put all the bass together and all the mids together and all the highs together. Um, and he said, no, this is too this is too difficult and complicated. You've got to put it all in one box. So I think in 82, we came up with the TMS3 and that just toured forever with Iron Maiden. Um, and, you know, the we really got some traction. And um, I remember being having to agree that we had to let the rental company go and, you know, concentrate on the manufacturing because we couldn't be um, competing with our own potential customers. I mean, it's, it's not rocket science. 
I mean, so tur- Turbo I, took off pretty heavy at that point because it was a sound. I remember the first system I heard, I was blown away with it. It was, you know, it was an 11 on a scale of 1 to 10, right? So what you're saying, you know, a lot of presence in the boxes themselves. But so you had some pretty explosive growth into that. Um, can you talk about uh, about that a little bit? And obviously you had uh, some rental partners over in the U.S. that made the boxes pretty big also, correct? Yes. Uh, let's see. Uh, that was Abe, Abe Vieira. Um, he, he was he was definitely one of the main guys. Um, and Carl Taylor from... Uh, Crystal Taylor Sounds. Yeah, Crystal Taylor Sounds. Um, we also encountered... Uh, I met Ron Lawman, who, who was a good friend of um, the guy behind Northwest Sound. Uh, Chris Strom, who's I think sadly passed on now, um, and he was on his mixer, but he did uh, he did make that original polarity checker for Turbo. We didn't make it, but he gave us a design for it, um, and we still make one to this day because it's got to be one of the most useful tools ever. You know, you can you can stick one end um, in your output from your mixer or into the mixer and go all the way to the speaker. So, and know that everything's at least the time it gets the speaker is singing off the same page, which is, you know, pretty crucial. Um, anyway, it's a bit of an aside. Um, I mean, we were phenomenally successful in the 80s. Um, was, that, was that primarily due to just, you know, Iron Maiden, I guess, has been a group that has always purchase their equipment from what I understand, right? And they were huge back then. Were they the primary driving force of, hey, I went to an Iron Maiden show and saw, you know, this great sound system. Where do I get it from? Was that pretty much the watershed moment? There was some of that, but there was also the fact that the European rental companies wanted an all-in-one box, and and we were the European companies making one. So... Um, Claire Brothers didn't sell S4s to other people, so, so not then anyway. Um, and the TMS3 was smaller, lighter, and more efficient than an S4. So there was no argument really. There was there was quite a uh, there was a crossover time between the festival system, which was built in '79, which was a big chunk of gear that that we put together for Glastonbury Festival in 79, and that carried on working for right through into the 80s, mid-80s. And then the TMS-3, which started at the beginning of the 80s and worked right the way through to the end of the 80s. So, um, I mean, when we did we did Monsters of Rock, Castle Donington, we were pulling TMS-3s back from all over Europe, weren't we, for that show. I think we had 300 cabinets up. That's yeah, yeah, it was in the um, it, it 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 went into the Guinness Book of Records. What I remember about it is polarity checking, three hundred cabinets, um, all of which had uh, at least five drivers in. Yeah, um, I, I think six, I, six I different crossovers driving them. And you know, um, you try and keep things standardised, but everybody gets their own ideas, which is fine. But we needed all this lot to sing together. 
and um you know that became my job that took some time uh, yeah it certainly <laughs> did and some patience yeah. it was also when, when tony said to me you know john moore is not necessarily better <laughs> yeah yeah um, yeah, did you really need 300 boxes? Of course not. <laughs> but it looked cool. When the so guy, how many of them were plugged in, actually? That's the next question. They were all plugged in and they were all working. There's an apocryphal story that somebody told me not long ago. They said, do you know, um, people have talked about this forever since then, do you know that you said to one of the guys on the crew, go up on the second level, fifth box in, there's a 10 inch not working and they went up there and they, and, uh, and they opened the back of the, and they said, do you know what? The 10 inch wasn't even there. And John Newsham could hear that from front of house. And uh, I said, well, actually the story was that the back door of the box was open. I could see daylight through it. <laughs> but That's a good one though. Yeah. It's quite a good one, isn't it? Um, so guys, really? I'm, a, I'm I'm a, I'm an entrepreneur and and I've built and and uh, tried to survive with many companies, and um, you know I think every company goes through this different sort of life where you know some days are thriving, some days are not so good, and you wonder why you ever started. And I'm sure with Turbo Sound you went through every wave of every one of those emotions, but. What was it that drove you to sell it? Is is it anything that we can talk publicly about, or is it uh, something that you prefer to yeah. skip over? Well, you see, no, no, no. Truth is truth, um, and we would never have sold. We we kind of realized, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a fact. We would never have sold. Which is what I'm uh, hearing, by the way. So that's why I wanted to ask that question because you guys are both passionate. You created, you know, your dream, basically, and then sold it quite quickly. Yeah. Well, you see, being uh, adverse to the establishment in general, and particularly corporate thinking, um, I really didn't want anything to do with the business, which was very foolish, um, because what you don't know can hurt you. Um, but very common, by the way. Yes. Yeah, when see, you have passionate, creative founders who you know, found a business on creativity and, and ideas and things like that. They tend not to be, it's almost counter business. Yes. Yeah. Because it's not really, uh, about turning a wheel and generating money. It's about exploring because, you know, one, I mean, I've done a bit of mountain climbing and one of the things is you keep thinking you see in the top, and then you realize it's just another bump in the ridge and there's a load more yet And um, as you're going up. And that's what seems to happen when you, when, you, when you find a new place further on and you start standing there, then you get to see more of what you didn't see before. Yeah. So it has rather carried on. And uh, I've got to say that... Um, our understanding in the last five, 10 years has matured to a point where I would say the work we've been doing in the last five years is absolutely the best we've ever done. And we've constantly, I mean, only two months ago, we had another breakthrough. Um, I mean, when it's, when it's like that, and when it feels like that, how on earth can you stop? Because, uh, you know, I personally, 
I think, well, both of us are well past retirement age at this point, but, um, you know, surf's up and we're, and we're still going. And um, we've got absolutely our own way of doing things and thinking about it. And it goes, you know, we can go back, as you can see, 50 years or more on all this. Um, and there's all sorts of things I could say about the current state of... Turbo, um, yeah, right. <laughs> Well, the business in general, the audio business overall. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that, but I I still want to get through this wide shell. So, I, shall I nutshell this? Shall I try and nutshell it? That'd be fun. And let's have a go. So, so we were Turbo Sound. Um, we were attracted to the idea of somebody that knew what of somebody that knew what they were doing business wise who would look after things for us. Um, Tony was building and experimenting. I was taking the experiments on tour and using them. And, uh, and so we hooked up with some other guys. And what we never really realized until too late was that the other guys had a different agenda. They wanted to build the business up and sell it. Mm -hmm. So by the time they'd come up with their agenda, and it was revealed to us we were not in a position of any power to stop it happening. Because we'd allowed ourselves to become diluted because on the way uh, we started a speaker company called Precision Devices and we'd also joined up with um, BSS who were the people making the crossovers right. and that became Edge Technology Group. Um, and now we at that point we were diluted to the to a stage where we couldn't we couldn't sell it was about to float and i think there was a crash in 87 or something so then it was um who can we who can we get out so uh, you you were basically these people who came in to run it for you were putting in money as well so they were diluting your ownership is what you're exactly. saying exactly we yeah. were the third oh okay we, yeah i mean it was edged it's a way too common story, by the way. So, it, you know, the, obviously there's nothing to be, you know, ashamed of or, or any of those types of things because this happens today in Silicon Valley every day on purpose, you know, where the founders think they have this great idea. And by the time the idea gets to, you know, what their dream was or whatever, they only own 6% of it. Um, it costs a lot of money to build things and to build companies and brands. So... It's, yeah, it's hard, you know. Yeah, well, you know, you go through life wanting to trust things, and um, it's a shame that that gets abused. Let's put it like that. Yeah, but there was lessons learned. Obviously, there were some positive lessons learned, and uh, and it boosted us into our own place where. So we carried on being Turbo Sound R and D, but but remotely for quite a long time. Still yeah. working for the same company. So you were basically running a service to that company where you were developing products for, for them? For a brief period. Um, uh, I, AK, we eventually we got, we got sold, I think um, around about 1991 to um, AKG the Austrian microphone company. Yeah. And um, I'd got enough 
understanding by then to realize that we were owned by a company that was shall we say on its way out because there wasn't there weren't any people there who had the necessary nuts to do what's being done because we'd met them by then and we thought well they're a sitting target something's going to happen to them um actually they got bought by Harman for an austrian shilling and Jeez. you know all the companies they'd um yeah well well because they had about 18 million in debt um and we'd managed to get ourselves and we, we negotiated our way out of the service contract just as um so Harman came in the front door and we were leaving by the back simultaneously so we were by 92 we were on our own wow. um so, so all the um engine well all the engineers and the people that had been responsible for all those turbo products left on mass uh, and that's how we founded function one well we we had to reinvent ourselves which is yeah. why in the 90s we um I mean, we were, you know, really good at woodwork and designing just about anything. So, you know, we made a living. But in, and off the back of that, we just developed um, the axe head technology. Um, and we got a big break um, with it at the Millennium Celebrations in 2000. And because we did the main arena with all our new stuff and that gave it, the kickoff, you know, there was enough quantity to warrant proper tooling and and, and all the rest of it. Um, so that's really what when Function One got going. I mean, there'd been about, I suppose, about six or seven years where we were developing all our new ideas. And um, I would assume there was a period of time too where you had some sort of non-compete agreements that you had to honor and. Yeah, I know it's not as common in Europe as it is over here, but certainly over here, someone if they were buying your company, even if you were a small owner in it, you'd be locked up for at least a few years um, from being able to start another speaker company. Yes, I believe there was some of that. One of the things we, one of the first things we did because we'd just done the flashlight system, which is uh, was used by the Pink Floyd extensively. Um, and we'd just done the, uh, actually, was it the first outing with it or the second? It was its first summer for Flashlight, did Glastonbury and then Roskilde festivals and then went straight to Berlin for the wall concert. Wow. It did. And big coming out party. For that yeah, yeah, that was, um, when we were working together with Brit Britannia Row because, um, Britannia Row was an amalgamation of Turbo Sound Rentals, which had been run by Mike Lowe for probably four or five years. And, um, you know, they had the Flying Forest system, which was a bunch of Al Altec big compression drivers and big horns. That manta rays, yeah. Manta rays, etc. Um, and Why they was were. called a Flying Forest system, by the way. I always because... wondered that. Okay, so it was in baskets that flew, and when you looked up, you saw these huge manta ray horns, which looked a bit tree-like, and it, it was just, and being a jumble of stuff in a basket, everyone just called it, it was an affection. So there was a space frame around the stuff. 
Yeah. Uh, and, you know, to make it what's obviously a bit of a weird shape into something that was packable. It would go in a truck. It would yeah, just be horrible. Yeah. Yeah. But, but they left that in the States, you see. When the Floyd toured the States, they left the old uh, Manta Ray system out there in the States. So back home, Britannia Road didn't have any speakers. And and because we'd just sold a big system to Iron Maiden, including our mixers, we didn't have any, much in the way of mixers, but we had loads of speakers. So it was a, it was a great uh, collaboration at the beginning. And, um, and I think Britannia Road, one of the guys at... Britannia Row was assembling Midas mixers there. So we had good mixers um, and our speakers and amplifiers. And yeah, it was a good collaboration for a few years. And this is how we got connected with the, with the Floyd and how we finished up um, in no man's land um, in Berlin with probably, well, certainly the biggest crowd I've ever been involved in. I think it was 365,000 in one go with uh, three rings of delays. Um, uh, another, th I mean, I've, I've, I've actually got pictures of the site from the top of the stage before and after the people have been there, but it's basically very sandy. And they'd, for years, they'd sprayed the, uh, the ground with defoliants because they didn't want people better hide in bushes when they were trying to shoot them after all. Um, so the whole area was basically toxic and every, I mean, it got, it got named Planet Zanussi because everybody got streaming eyes and sore throats because there was that much um, unpleasant materials in amongst the sand. Um, that I certainly remember. The um, Dust Bowl of Doom. The Dust Bowl of Doom, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know what this is. This was the area in Berlin between the two two yeah. walls yeah they had they weren't content with one they they had they had an area in between a no man's land and that was potsdamer platz right by the uh the national interesting the reichstag yeah and we've been again i've been back there since and you uh, no recognition of it at all it's just been completely built on and don't know what you can't tell anything blocks of flats and offices yeah memorials and stuff too i would expect right or no, uh, maybe they the don't wall. want to remember that, I guess. They've left a bit of the wall and they've been campaigning because it was all graffitied up and everything by people. And they've been campaigning to keep it. But they're trying to get rid of that too, yeah. Well, it's They'd not like, like a sign of something great from the past. It's a sign of, you know, something fairly terrible. So, yeah. yeah. It's a warning, I guess. But, I mean, what a strange spot for a show with 360,000 people on land that was never really meant to hold a concert, obviously. Uh, you know, there weren't supposed to be people there. But it was the wall concert. Yeah, and of it, course. It's about the wall coming down. Yeah. And, and people must have come from all over the place to get there. It was an incredible event. I mean, I, I only saw it on, on DVD, of course. I didn't, I didn't go there, but... Uh, an incredible event. It was unbelievable. It was the densest crowd I've ever been in. To get from one place to another in the crowd was, you basically had to tap somebody on the shoulder and swap places with them to move forwards. It was unbelievable. It was incredibly difficult to get from front of house to a delay tower to yeah. check anything. Interesting. So back, and, um, back to uh, back to like later now. So you know, function one, 
you're out of you're out of uh, Turbo Sound. They're gone. You've taken some time off. You've now developed a new system that is probably, if not as good, better than what you had developed in the past. And um, first of all, I'm I'm curious on the name, like why the why the spelling, and is it significant? Does it mean something other than funk? You know. Um, well, yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, it was a combination of things. I mean, uh, after after the sixties, um, when we go into the seventies, I sort of had an. I just stayed with soul, you know, the development, evolution of soul music because that was my favourite music, and um, we got seriously into um, into into funk music. I mean. One of the best albums from that time, about maybe 70, 70 71, 72, um, Sly and the Family Stone. Um, but the the first Commodores album, before they'd put R Richie up front, was, is a brilliant album. It's called Machine Gun, and it's not many albums that's been made where every track is worthwhile, but this was one of them. And, uh, Very funky. And extremely funky. And we, you know, we went on to discover Parliament, and Funkadelic, Funkadelic yeah. and Bootsy. Uh, actually, I met Bootsy about two or three years ago, and he's he's as lovely as um, as you'd think he should be. Um, he's really quite quite an amazing guy. Um, so it's in my blood the um, the funk thing. And in that '90s period, I discovered windsurfing and. Uh, there's a, there was a German company called F2, that, and their um, their slogan was fun and function. And I like the idea that form follows function. And we thought, well, somebody said, well, surely it's got to be with a K. And so it, it all started to make sense. Function one, the first function is, I would imagine, um, self-awareness or to think um that's the first function and funk is actually on the one um so it's funk on one interesting <laughs> so you know interesting so we talked a lot about you know you guys came from a concert touring background you know the wall iron maiden everything else and obviously the function one loudspeakers are the most popular in the pre-recorded or electronic dance music uh, arena right now. So it's, yes. it's kind of really, it's, it's a bizarre disconnect and I'm trying to wrap my head around how, okay, here comes function one. It's the, it's the year 2000. Now we've had the millennium success. Where well, did it diverge? Well, it, I mean, in our minds, of course it never did. Um, but we, we were absent. And, and in that 90s period, two things happened. One, we had um, the bane of digital desks um, arrived on us for all the reasons of... In fact, I think since the 90s, the whole thing has been driven by convenience, to be perfectly frank. Um, uh, Christian Heil did his, did his VDOS, which is still probably one of the better ones. Um, and, you know, we were in the process of reinventing ourselves. So we'd gone a bit quiet. And in that time, 
line arrays appeared um, and the mixers to, if you like, make sure you didn't hear how intrinsically not right they are. Um, and, uh, and, and that's what happened. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't go with it. Uh, we also had a falling out with Britannia Row, which obviously I'm not going to go into any details, but we did. And, uh, it was, it was announced to us that it was going to be war. Um, and, uh, I think it, I think it was because somehow this, because of our success in dance music, I mean, line arrays, what can you say that's good about them is that they are convenient when you're trying to rig up a 3d cluster, you know, to follow actually the space we live in. Um, we don't live in a 2D world. Um, in fact, there's probably more dimensions than um, than we're you know ge geometrically aware of. Um, so the, the the thing is, they're very they're very quick to rig. Uh, they're convenient, and they fit in you know with cubic thinking, if you like. So we we wouldn't go there because we'd heard a few and really didn't have the same buzz out of them that we were getting from our own stuff and so people the dance world which at that point i think the music was nearly still danceable um uh because that had all started in the 80s and there used there used to be all kinds of random parties going on which um uh is where my part, my current wife, and um, in fact, we've been together for 33 years. Um, we we used to go out to all these and have a great time, um, and it was really good. It was a sense of freedom. In fact, it reminded me of the hedonistic, positive state of mind that was happening in the late 60s. It was like a resonance of that, except that it was obviously more dynamic because people were dancing harder, not necessarily spacing out to the Grateful Dead. So um, they were, these people were not concerned whether it was a line array or how convenient, they were just going for the sound. So we weren't doing a line array and it had become, you know, the trendy thing, if you like. So a couple with the fact that people said, well, because they're in dance music, like it can't be any good for live because, um, um, it would appear that we, that dance music and dance and live music use um, completely different kinds of sound. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting that you you are telling this right now because I was curious why you went after the dance market, but the dance market actually went after you because of your speaker it, designs and the actual sound. And it would be true to say in club world in dance music world is that they're more into audio than they are into than they are into logistics if you like right. the audio is really important the sound is really important well and in fact the size of some of your rigs i've always heard you know made them even more appealing so i know some really big club guys over here who use function 1 stacks and you know the physical size the physical dimensions is part of the reason that they use them because it does look daunting you know, on the, on the corner of a dance floor. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, I also saw 
one of the interviews that you guys did, and I can't remember which one it was, but where I believe it was John who um, described the sound of like a tom roll coming through a line array system versus coming through your system. Yeah, that's me. Yeah, there was just no life to it coming. And the funny thing is, I've always felt this way about line array systems. Like going to shows now, and I just assumed it was because I was old and my ears are half dead, but going to shows now just doesn't produce the same emotion from from an audio standpoint as it did when I was younger. No, absolutely not. And I mean, I think the peak of good audio, um, you know, generally uh, would be the late 80s, just before, you know, the digital nightmare. I mean, to this day, I can only name two desks that are digital that are anywhere near as good as an XL4 or even a Midas Venice, quite frankly. Right. Because it's a lot to do with um, this not just see i mean just consider that the light you know the light we are aware of one octave a rainbow that's it we've got 10 of those octaves in audio and actually the res- if you want to if you want to have a continuum in the realm of light you you only need to move at 28 30 frames per second to do the same thing with sound You've got to you've got to be moving. The events have to be closer together than fifteen to eighteen microseconds. I mean, it's not even um, it's not even that hard to work out because every single sound that any of us hears, we automatically know where it came from. That takes an awful lot of processing. Yeah. It's some it's so instinctive and natural we all take it for granted but actually you can discern if you're blindfolded the movement of a small speaker as little as one or two degrees you know it's moved if you do the trigonometry on that you get to about 15 or 18 microseconds never mind your milliseconds yeah and this probably explains why Digital can sound so weird sometimes, but you can't quite put your finger on it. But is it also Um, down to like, because the same thing has happened in lighting where the better the instruments get and the better the controls get, like, you know, for example, in in digital lighting consoles now, you have these predetermined effects that are built into the console. And a lot of Uh, let's call them lazy lighting operators will really rely on those effects, those effects engines within the the console, as opposed to creating their own effects is the same thing happening in audio where it comes to like the better the tools are getting from us or the more convenient the tools are getting the less thought you're putting into it. I, I actually got an expression for that. Creativity is inversely proportional to the amount of technology available. That's very true. That's very true. And, and I think that might even be an answer. Yeah. <laughs> to that question. Yeah. Um, well, there's a front of house guy that um, that 
used to work with a lot of bands when I was, I owned a music store and I sold sound equipment to some of these bands and guitars and stuff in the, uh, in the early 80s. And um, there was one front of house guy named Jim Yakabuski. I don't know if you've ever worked with Jim, but he worked with Van Halen. He worked with uh, lots and lots. Of, he ended up going and becoming bigger. Um, but we used to call him Jim Past the Bus Keys because he always had the bus keys. Uh, right. But it, his name was Jim Yakabuski, or is Jim Yakabuski. <laughs> and, uh, but, anyways, Jim was one of those guys that you could give him a state-of-the-art Martin rig at the time, or you could give him old JBLW bins and 4560s and whatever, and he could make that sound great. And sometimes the cheaper, older system sounded even better. It just had more life, and, and he put more creativity into it. So I agree with what you just said, that statement that you just made. And if I could remember it, I'd actually quote it, but I'll have to listen back. <laughs> well, creativity is inversely proportional to the amount of technology available, yeah. um, you know, and you do see it time and time again. And uh, um, it's almost like the kind of people that are involved. I mean, this was a brand new frontier, big audio. How long has it been with us? 60 years, maybe yeah. since since maybe the beginning of the 60s. Um, and you know, it's a whole new thing that, uh, to be honest, I don't think it's full promise as it, it has generally been appreciated or realized yet. Um, yeah, but do you see an end to this? Uh, I, you know, I know we're going to talk about your line array system, which I don't think is actually a line array system, but kind of looks like one or is as convenient as one, but your Vero rig, but do you see an end to line array like is line array just a stopping point until we get to something that's maybe convenient but sounds a heck of a lot better possibly not yeah. because it's <clears throat> you know having having rig 3d clusters and rig rig vero and now the new baby brother the vx um i mean it's a dream and we we have found a way to make, should we say, vertical arrays collaborate um, properly. Um, and I mean, that's the key to this to, to this new new thing we're doing. Um, and we're still using horns. Um, actually, the VX we're not because it just isn't the room. Um, but anyway, the by and large, it's still all horn loaded. Um, we know how to get them to collaborate. Uh, the fact, so I, I probably not, you know, stacking them up like sandwiches, um, is really, really convenient. I mean, one of the things with, with the big Vero was that we just, uh, well, I decided that really trying to make all the boxes the same at that level was pretty pointless because you don't need. 90 degrees when you've got half your rig in the sky um you so we made two two dispersions a 90 and a 60 obviously the 60s go at the top and the same size box we put three horn loaded 15s in which um you know will go quite happily get down to 
65 hertz anyway. Um, and by the way you arrange the boxes gives you another dimension of being able to tailor the directivity. And, um, and so we've been, um, well, I mean, we've had the thing for five, six years, um, because you're not allowed to use function one for live. Um, we've, it, it's not been easy and it has been the dance market that has embraced it. And we do, we probably do more shows in America than we do in UK. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I mean, nobody said life was going to be fair. Yeah. Well, or, or easy. <laughs> yeah. But, um, my sadness is that, um, so many people have been deprived of the experiences that I've had that if you like, yeah, turn my mind, we've all had in the eighties and, yeah. yeah, and we, and we have, as a company, none of those things are forgotten. They're absolutely fundamental to the way we behave. We are not pandering to people's convenience, um, unless it can make proper sense. And um, you know, great, you've got your show on a USB stick, but I mean, if you actually listen to this mixer. Um, through a proper set of speakers with a with a with a decent source, um, probably not. Um, I mean, just the thing with clocks is mind blowing. Um, and there's some well known mixers that will sound a hell of a lot better if you put a decent clock on. Um, I mean, I know people use Big Ben. We tend to favour Black Lion. They're a small company north of Chicago. Um, sound absolutely lovely um there's many desks that respond well to that particular clock um you, you know um while we're here i don't dislike digital um because it can be if you know what bits to use and you and you've still got a set of ears um that it can be as good or better than analog plus all the convenience but Nine times out of ten, when we're doing a dance thing, um, I mean, we're working in Ibiza at the moment. I think there was a show last night. Um, we will use a Midas Venice because really? most, yeah, hmm. uh, because, because because it does what you need to do. Yeah, and it, um, does mess, it does not mess the sound up. See, one of our tests would be because we've got our speakers to certainly to a hi-fi level now. We can we can hear all kinds of things that on your average speaker are just going to be lost in the mush. Um, and we one of the things we do is we'll put inputs and outputs, everything at Unity, and just pull the plugs and plug them together. So we're not interested in how many bells and whistles or what tricks it can do. What's its actual integrity in passing audio? And you know, everything at Unity, the ideal would be, doesn't sound any different from sending it through a, uh, a decent bit of wire. And um, if you do that with a Midas Venice, or at least the ones that when we last did it, it must be about 10 years since we have, so God knows how they're being made now, but um, you, couldn't, you could barely hear any difference at all. It didn't mess with the audio. Hmm. And, you know, where where have we got to in 
since the 1930s, when we had some cone drivers, probably horn loaded, and all that early horn loading stuff was simply because all I had was six and 10 watt valve amplifiers um, and a compression driver. Well, here, here we are all these years later, and we've still got compression drivers running far too low because, I mean, it's like a chainsaw to the ears when you start pushing them. Um, it always was, always will be. That's what drove us into the cone mid-range. And I don't know that we were the first to do it. We were certainly the first to do it with horns. I think John Mayer made something with a lot of cone mid-range, um, that big kind of cluster he used to put up behind the Grateful Dead. FM. The sound uh, beams yeah. you're talking about? Yeah, well, we'll sound, sound beam ones and threes. Quite possibly. Um, we didn't have a hell of a lot of exposure to it. But cone mid-range um, was were definitely um, started here in terms of a horn-loaded effect. And um, um, people talk, were talking about a Philly shave. Well, that was actually inspired by what we were doing because, you know, everybody knew each other in the early days because there, were, there weren't that many people involved. Um, and... Uh, that's where that came from. Yeah, um, it's a it's a sad state. You know, you're you're uh, you're making really really great points, but it's kind of bumming me out because basically what we've done in the audio business is we've we've kind of said it's good enough as opposed yeah. to trying to maintain very very high audio integrity. We've gone to digital consoles and line arrays that are good enough, but really really convenient. It's yeah. plant hire, isn't it? The uh, the live world has definitely become live touring concert world has become plant hire. See, and there's there's another aspect as well, just on the engineering side, because uh, something you just said made me think of this. Um, and you talked about your old friend, the engineer, who used to be able to, you know, basically get a great get a great sound out of almost anything. <clears throat> because he knew what was in it. Yeah, because he understood the components. Now, now, engineers now, uh, sound engineers who work mixers, there's kind of two lots, isn't there? There's the sound guys, the mix engineers, and the systems engineers. And neither of them know about the other part of the job, or at least that's the plan, They're to be kept separate. Um, the engineer turns up with his show on his USB stick, plugs it in the console, the systems engineer hangs the system, uh, EQs it to a computer, not necessarily to his ears, but to a computer, um, using the algorithms that he's been given to, given by the manufacturer. The two jobs don't really, they hardly overlap. The systems engineer passes it over to the mix engineer, who then does his show and goes away and... Uh, Possibly it sounds the same as it did last night, which was average at best. There is no understanding of what it, what is a sound system. A sound system is these bits of cardboard, paper, voice coils, magnets, um, wood. bits of metal and wood that's, that's trying to make an illusion of sound, an illusion of sound. Yeah. So... The tuning that's involved in that, if you understand that those are just bits of wood and cardboard and stuff, you know, you you can you can think and feel through 
to the from the beginning of the system to the end. When you push a fader up and you listen to what's happening, you should know when you hear an edge of distortion, is that driver distortion? Is that amplifier distortion? Or has it all been sanitized out so completely that really nothing much happens? You push the fader up and at a certain point it just sounds weird. Yeah. You know? It's so disconnected. Yeah. But these jobs being disconnected from each other, I think, is a, is really a, a crux thing with engineers now. They don't understand what they're doing. Well, I learned something else on, on one of your interviews where you were talking about system EQ versus channel EQ and, and box design. Mm. And if, if you design and tune a box properly that you don't need and shouldn't use system EQ, you should just be able to EQ the channel, and then that way you can tell where it's coming from in, mm -hmm. in a similar vein to what you're saying right now. But, you know, very, very valid points, and, you know, I do wonder where it's all going, I guess. And then, you know, the added layer to these problems or to just the reality, I guess it's not a problem, it's where we are in every industry, is the corporatization of everything, the fact that, very large conglomerates like Samsung now own very large conglomerates of audio companies. And um, that's not going to change. So I believe there is always going to be a market for niche players like Function One. And I, I probably, nobody wants to be called a niche player because it's synonymous with small but I don't think it needs to be. You know, I think there are niche players who are just independent companies who still passionately produce great products, you know, for the right reasons, and hopefully make a profit doing it. Well, it's almost become a thing, certainly with me, that if we're not here, then there really isn't anybody else doing things as uniquely and as effectively as as we are and if we go that's it um the whole the corporate i mean you could say that what we have now is corporate sound um across the board you know you're only allowed to use one of four systems say or most of the time it's just one or two um you know from germany or france and that's it i mean how boring and going nowhere is that um you know it's not part of my spirit yeah. And, and and what's done it is, you know, in a way, when um, when sequencers and samplers really began to get big, you know, in the in the 80s through the electronic music thing, I thought, well, this is great. Anybody can make music. I now think this was a big mistake because there's all sorts of people putting out music, which is entirely unmusical. And some people should not be making music, just like some people should not be singing because they can't. And that's fine. Do something else. There's plenty of stuff to do in the world. Find something you're good at and then and then stick at it. But but, but Tony, un unfortunately, that's everything nowadays. You know, the Internet has made everything much closer. And so, you know, there's people producing all sorts of product and content and sounds and you can go and buy anybody in their garage could make speaker boxes today because you can buy the plans and the materials and kits and all kinds of things online. So, you know, really right now, the ability to produce something is or the, the barrier to entry is lower than it's ever been in, in really everything. 
Yeah, and... you can find out anything you want. You need to know. Well, that's it's correct. true. Yeah. So it's it's uh, you know, but I mean, at the same time, the sound business as a business seems to be very strong. You know, we own a company called Gear Source that does a lot of business globally. And, um, you know, sound for us today is bigger than lighting. And that didn't used to be the case. Five years, 10 years ago, we were much bigger in lighting than we were in audio. And today audio is a, is a bigger category for us. And it seems that the companies, the rental companies, are better capitalized. They're more profitable, they're making more money or have more money than do many of the lighting companies. And so the business is good, but you know maybe the result isn't as good. Because I do, you know, I would agree with you on something from a very lay person standpoint, being me, that when I go to a show now, it sounds like a whole bunch of little speakers. You know, it just doesn't sound like a rock and roll concert anymore. It sounds like a whole bunch of little speakers all over the place that are just making me hear it, but I don't feel it the same way I used to. And again, some of that might be age, but I do believe a lot of it is down to the technology they're using. Yeah, well, one of the one of the things in the audio about audio is that you get used to what you live with and what you use. And you know, I mean, I, I, I couldn't count on, I couldn't count how many times an engineer's rocked up with his test track, and you know, within five seconds, I have to walk off because it's intrinsically his test track is just so distorted and awful, and I think, how can you tell anything from this? And the bloke doesn't even realise it. And it's, you know, it's been digitized to, do you remember um, that when, I think in the early noughties, um, Fleetwood Mac made another album. I remember going to that show, yep. And it was, sonically, it was unbelievably terrible. And that had all been done on Pro Tools, um, which had one of the worst, um, D2As ever at that time it may be better now but when you go back to rumours and you listen to that compared with what they did in 2000 and now tell me it's not it's not been going backwards I mean empires rise and fall you know and we're we're dealing with we're dealing with a business that, that can't actually hear properly anymore because everybody's been listening to such nonsense that most of the hearing that people have has been corrupted when you when you listen when you hear really good sounds and you're used to bad sound you actually think there's something wrong with the good sound to start with because you have to unlearn all the all the eqing and and all the things that your brain's been doing to make this acceptable and it it, it 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 doesn't happen just like that. Yeah, but in, in your crystal ball, where's it going? So, you know, we do, as you said, it's Germany and France kind of control that side of the business today. And so do you think one of those two, if not both of them, is working on some incredible new technology that's going to take, take us leaps and bounds forward? If the line array, as you said, probably isn't going away, and that is the standard now, you know, where's that go? 
I don't, to be perfectly honest, because they think they've done it. Hmm. As um, I heard somebody say, well, we're set now. We're absolutely not. I mean, distortion content um, is, if you run these things at two or 5% of, you know, what they can do, some of them, you know, it can sound acceptable. But as soon as you get proper dynamics or you start to push it a bit, it just rags out and you and you can get to a point very quickly where the distortion content is actually greater than the fundamental. And and people think we've come somewhere. This is what I'm trying to say. We've done tons of stuff with the electronics and the digital side of that. But drivers are still still are still in the 1930s. And so that so that's well, just just to interrupt here. So, you know, in talking about this, right, you've probably on this podcast wet a lot of people's appetites for, you know, what your what the Virox uh, the Vero rig really sounds like or your new your new system sounds like. Are you currently doing anything in the US before we duck out here? You know, are you currently doing a roadshow or anything else like that to to get this thing out there? We're not. We have, um, we have Vero in the States. We have two um, two twenty four box Vero systems in US, and we do uh, the Carl Cox stage in Miami, um, which is quite you know quite something. For um, yeah, 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 um, and and Arcadia we did there as well a few years, but. Yeah. I mean, there are quite a few shows going on. We um, we work with Dave Tipper, who's um, got some of the best produced sounds that I've ever heard. Um, and he's kind of new experimental. Um, it, uh, it has a language. I'm still learning it. But the sonics are absolutely phenomenal. And they don't want to use anything else. Do you have distribution? Else. Do you have a, a distributor, a partner in the U.S.? We do. We have we have Sound Investment. Oh, okay, um, yep. And you know they do a lot of installs, and um, but we want to we want to get Varro back into Live World. Um, I mean, I'm, that, I'm excited to see it, guys, for sure. And I'm sure there's new, there's new rental companies coming through now as well. Uh, particularly in the states, the the guys that are really into audio again, um, it's that's very interesting. Is that it's McLean, isn't it? What's the what's like the thirty second elevator pitch on on Vero? Like what what makes it better than existing line array systems in your opinion? Well, it flies like a line array. Kind of looks like a line array. Maybe a bit more interesting. Um, acts like a point source so it sums in the far field so it's much more efficient much more coherent yeah i, I mean the efficiency it's probably see everything's more relaxed you know you're not thrashing your amplifiers you're not um having to worry about i mean case in point uh we're doing um uh a festival near perpignan um electro beach in the south of france um, David Getter's engineer gets on. I actually, I wasn't there. I'm repeating the story from John. Um, 
because he's in his home country, he gets halfway through the first track and gets on the mic. Well, when he got on the mic, um, the engineer nearly nearly fell over because he'd set the vocal mic the um, eight dB louder to this is what he's used to to cut through so that the vocal would get heard. He had to pull it down by eight dB. He could not believe it. He said it's he said, I've really been looking forward to trying this system because I'm so fed up with the average festival sound. And the fact that we've got the dynamics that are so good in it that that the guy had to pull his vocal mic down at eight dB um, to actually have it, you know, at a more normal level um, shows you actually what's going on. Yeah. So when you push something, 70% of what you're doing is being wasted in the in the utter argument that's going on because because line arrays only behave as line arrays, um, you know, where the where the dimension is commensurate with the with, with the, the frequency. Um, once you get uh, higher up, they start acting as independent sources. So this is why John says when a snare hits, you just want to hear one snare rather than half a dozen in extremely quick succession. But it's not the same thing because yeah. trans transient is absolutely everything. Yeah, it makes a thing. I did a paper back in 2009 for reproduced sound. It's all in there um, about, you know, how we evolved on the African plains. Um, and if you think about it, the eyes are only good for defense or seeing food um, when you've got clear view and it's daylight. Most of the time, you, well, most of the time you wouldn't have that luxury. You'd be in, it'd either be dark or you'd be in a jungle. And that's why our vector location is so phenomenal. Yeah. And that's on some very, very fast timing. There's actually more time difference between when you're standing on the ground and you've got a line array box, which is acting as a, uh, as a separate source and quite a lot of the range they are, um, there's more difference between one box and the one above it than there is between what the ear can discern. So of course they sound like, like they're over there because when you hear a smeared transient, you you think right that's come a distance because it's it's had time to reflect off something um you don't go i've just heard a smeared transient yeah. all that really happens you you just think this is either close or it's far away right and and, and I, you and you really need in the jungle to know when something's close yeah well here's the um, thing guys like here you know what i'm hearing and what i think and feel about all of this is is something that i've been you know that's been very personal to me for a long time when when big companies buy little companies and when things become corporate and and you know based completely on commercial on how much you're selling and things like that the passion and the feel goes out of it and you guys you know are obviously very passionate and and believe very deeply in the principles of what you're doing and the principles of better sound and and those types of things and that to me is to be commended like that is you know that to me like if i was building a sound company today 
I'd want to build it around the Vero because I know you guys are behind it and you give a damn what that box sounds like. And, you know, I could call you probably during dinner and say, hey, you know, we've got whatever number of these boxes and there's 70,000 people here and we think there's this one funny little thing. And, you know, hey, put the phone up to the speaker. Well, here's what's wrong. You know, like, I just feel like that's the sort of response I'd get from you guys. The problem is that, you know, in the industry, the sound industry, the lighting industry, it, you kind of have to go with the crowd because, A, you want to be able to resell your stuff later into the used market. And it's hard when you're, when you're sort of a black sheep brand. Um, and, B you want to be able to gang boxes together. So if you have two systems of 24 Vero's in the United States, the problem is you're not going to get the Super Bowl or you know some massive show because you need to pull together 200 boxes or whatever. And I've been on the fighting side of that and I've won a couple times and I've lost a couple times. And you know, so I really appreciate and commend you know, the challenge that you guys are up against and I hope you win because, you know, at the end of the day, I think we all win if you're able to push people into demanding better sound, right? No so, question. Yeah. And, and it has to be said that I believe we attract the customers that like what we do. Yeah, and people so who give a damn. Our, our customers are really fanatical. Yeah. Our well, customers I was introduced not- to your brand by a fanatical person over here who was building very big nightclubs. And, um, you know, that's how I got to even know who Function One was. And then the more I researched, the more I liked it. If I was still doing clubs, that's the system I'd be using. Because those, those dynamics that I was just talking about don't matter in a club installation. So in a club installation, you just want the best sounding, the best match for your customer, whatever it is. But it doesn't matter for resale and for ganging boxes together. That's not an issue. So um, I love what you guys are doing. I mean, I really do. And, and uh, we'll probably try and reach out to your distributor here and, you know, maybe talk to them on one of our future podcasts or something and see if we can help try getting getting a buzz going uh, around that box. And like Henry was saying, I'd love to, to actually hear the rig at some point, too. So we'll we'll probably stay in touch from that standpoint. But yeah. Um, Anything outside of audio and outside of, of developing speaker boxes and, and making things sound better, is there anything else you're passionate about? Do you guys get into, like a lot of the people we bring on this show, because you know we are called geezers of gear, so we tend to bring a lot of older people onto the show, people who have been in the business for a while, and a, we're, we see a trend of people either a giving back in some way or b educating. Do you get involved in any of that stuff? Certainly do. Um, uh, do do all sorts of um, educational stuff. Um, I mean, we work with um, various audio schools. Some of the more enlightened ones bring would um, bring a whole gang of students down down here to see function one and um one of the things i would do was uh play them a track that was if you like a reasonable quality wav file um versus an mp3 um and you know it was a joy that so many of them absolutely got what um 
what the difference is. Um, Things like that. Um, Funnily enough, um, Wrexham University, which I guess is uh, um, one of the main universities of North Wales, um, have decided they're going to give me an honorary fellowship um, because of a, uh, an educational talk I gave. Um, it was about a year ago. Um, and I, you know, we had a, we had a, we had a good digital desk and a, and a more communal garden one, if you like. And they, and it was great that they all heard the differences. Yeah. Um, and you know, I just generally talked about some of the things I've touched, touched on about, um, how our perception works because, you know, over the years when you're, um, not trying to be, but find yourself in contradiction to what everybody else seems to be thinking you do. I mean, if you're a reasonable person, you start questioning what the fuck you think you're on or, yeah. <laughs> I do that every day. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Yeah. And, you know, I've had to try and analyze what this difference is. Why do I, why do I loathe liner race so much? I mean, it got me thinking about the whole transient thing and resulted in that particular paper. Um, uh, I have quite enjoyed writing. So we do, <laughs> we do try to spread the word and, um, you know, I do really enjoy talking to students, you know, the openness of mind, the, um, the acuteness of their hearing, um, you know, my hearing's old, but it's very experienced Yeah. and, um, you know, the brain's very good at compensating. Well, I'll tell you, on this show, we get our listeners range from probably 18 to 80. And so, you know, you're going to get a lot of attaboys from people who think you're saying exactly the right thing. You're going to get a few eye rolls from 25-year-old audio engineers who, you know, just absolutely love their Digico desk and, you know, VDOS sound system. And that's all there is to it. You're you're a foolish old man. Um, and, you know, but I love what you just said about educating people on using a wave file over an mp3 and just because it's a digital file they don't all sound the same you know some do sound better than others and there's ways to make these things sound better and you know we talk to people all the time who are using vinyl still you know because of that the warmth of the sound and um i mean it's it these arguments are always going to be there i mean right there is you know the digital versus analog debate has not gone away no and thank god in a way because so much of the digital gear is horribly flawed and um you know until it's right i think that argument not only will continue but should continue i agree with you i agree with you well thank you guys very much we're pushing two hours here we promised you 90 minutes i think so you guys are really, really interesting. We could have kept talking all day, but I think we all have uh, mouths to feed. And uh, <laughs> and so we've enjoyed it very much. If there's anything we can do to help you in the future, please let us know. Um, obviously, we'll send you a link to the podcast as soon as it's uploaded this afternoon. And, uh, yeah, thanks a bunch. No, it's, been fun. it's been really good. Enjoyed thanks. it. Thanks, right. guys. It was fun. Thank, Thank you very so much. much. Have a great week. Bye. 
You too. Bye. Bye. Like fat out in the god old band. Y'all aware I'm the one that.